All right. Welcome to survival mode. It's uh, it's a the podcast, uh, you know, that I decided by Todd Angelucci, I wanted to really help impact and get some information out to the world, to the community. I'm a registered nurse slash health coach who faced a traumatic diagnosis of a brain tumor and, you know, really wanted to share the experience and lessons learned through the journey. And people I've met along the way who have worked through challenges and are now helping other people, just sharing their story and learning to live life out loud without regrets. Um, you know, I've shared my struggles and some of the traumas and anxiety and all those things that I went through and also kind of the lessons learned. And so this podcast is about working through what's holding people back, keeping them from living a happy, inspired life. You don't have to necessarily have had a traumatic experience, but I think what that does is um, gives a, a new insight. And I wish anybody and everybody to have an insight so they live their life happy, inspired, and moving forward. And we're not always happy. There's ups and downs for sure. So we help weed through the confusing information about health, healing, and transformation. And today I am super honored and blessed to have Mandy Chambliss. She is an ovarian cancer survivor. And I have to say, I, I saw her on social media. I saw her story and I heard some of the things she was sharing and talking about. And I was super inspired um, because, you know, through some of the ups and downs, you know, has lived and is learning to live um, an inspired life. And um, she's here to share her story and kind of share anything that, you know, kind of inspires her to um, help others in, in this world. So Mandy, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm super excited. So, so you were diagnosed here at age 28 with mm -hmm. ovarian cancer stage three C is that mm -hmm. what it's called? Right. Yep. That's right. And for those viewers or, or listeners out there who haven't heard of that, can you explain a little bit about what that is? Yeah. So, um, Ovarian cancer and, and most cancers are diagnosed or in kind of defined by stages. So stage one ovarian cancer basically means that the cancer is defined and maintained in the ovary. So it has not spread. And then it kind of goes up from there to stage four. Within each one of those stages, you have an A, B, and a C. And in essence, each letter progression means that the cancer has progressed slightly more. So stage three means that the cancer has metastasized to neighboring organs or maybe your abdominal wall. And it's also, as you go through stage three, A, B, and C, stage three, C, maybe B also, I honestly don't remember right now, but stage three, you definitely have metastases to the lymph nodes as well. So Stage 3C is the, the last level before you get to stage four ovarian cancer. Now, obviously, as the stages progress, life expectancy reduces. So for me, I was given about a 20% chance to live five years. And February 13th of 2022 will be 13 years. So I know, fist pump. 
So that is a I, for sure. <laughs> yes. I am, I am thankful and blessed to be one of the ones here to tell my story. One of the hard things about ovarian cancer is that, um, and some of you guys out there may have heard this before, but it's called the silent killer. And it's because a lot of the symptoms mimic other types of issues you may have gastrointestinal or, or whatever. And so it progresses misdiagnosed sometimes for months and months. So it is very, very common for women to not be diagnosed until they are already progressed to stage three, unfortunately. And because of that, and we can, we can for sure talk about this and delve into this if you'd like. Along the way, I've met a lot of friends, survivor friends, and I've lost a lot of survivor friends because of this as well. So um, there, it's kind of a heavy thing. You feel blessed and you feel guilt at the same time. Uh, but I'm, I'm very, very happy and wait, awaiting February 13th. And I just continue to push through and find the light and the positivity and, and carry on. I don't think move on. I never say move on. I, I don't, I don't think we ever move on. I, I just define it as carrying on, you know? So yeah, that's, that's kind of in a nutshell. That's me now. So let me ask you a question. So you're 28 years old. What brings you, cause I know me at 28, I was like, whatever, you know, <laughs> I'm having fun. I'm traveling. I'm like, you know, we're just, you know, I'm with friends. I just graduated college. Actually my, you know, my son, my son was just born. Like, like what brought you to here at 28 to this diagnosis? Like what led up to it? And tell me a little bit more about that. Oh man. Well, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind, actually a couple of things come to mind. I, what led me here to this stage of diagnosis was hundred percent misdiagnosis after misdiagnosis after misdiagnosis. And at that point in my life, I mean, I would like to think at 28, I had a good head on my shoulders. I, you know, baselines have moved, right? Because people, when I go to a doctor, they'll ask me, are you tired? Are you this? Are you that? And I'm like, well, what am I supposed to be at 41? And what would I look like slash feel like had I not had the health history that I've had? So I don't have a baseline anymore for who and what and how all the things should have been. Um, so that being said, at 28, I had just graduated with my doctorate in audiology, which nobody knows what that is. So I'll just tell you, <laughs> it's a hearing and balance doctorate. So, um, so I just graduated from grad school two years prior to that and had actually just been married for about two years as well, which is a story within itself. But um, I just started having some strange things that were happening. I was training for my first half marathon and I kept gaining weight and I was very thin, very healthy. I ate very healthy at the time. And I couldn't understand why my pants wouldn't zip anymore and why my lower back was aching. And I just, at that age, I, I didn't, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I knew about breast cancer. I knew about brain cancer and, and certain types of cancer, but I didn't, cancer was cancer to me. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand the, the intricacies of what was going on. It never even crossed my mind. Now, 
all of that to say I did pursue medical treatment and I did continue to go to, I believe it was four different doctors and they misdiagnosed me. And thankfully I did not listen to them or you and I would not be having this conversation right now. So there was something within me that told me this is not right. But lack of understanding, lack of, I'm assuming just education on cancer and and awareness in general, and just being just plain young and thinking you're invincible. And surely, certainly that would never happen to you. Definitely progressed this uh, misdiagnosis process for sure. So to, to explain this a little bit more in terms of how I felt and where I was when I was diagnosed, I woke up in a recovery room with the nurse dictating over me. And she said, 28 year old female malignant neoplastic ovary. That's how I found out I had cancer. So it wasn't like a, this is so-and-so's doctor's office. We need you to come in to, to, so we can talk to you about your results type thing. I mean, that's clearly most certainly a red flag. Um, so I would have had a little bit more of a heads up, I think had that happened, but the final doctor that I went to that ended up being my oncologist finally did an ultrasound. There's a mass. It's the size of a cantaloupe. It's, it's moving. So we're not too terribly concerned about it. It's, it's not cancer because it's mobile, but we do want to get it out as soon as possible, but there's no rush. And I'm like, okay, well, what are you doing Tomorrow, size of a cantaloupe, size of a cantaloupe. Yeah. So a cantaloupe's like this. It's like it's like the that. size of my head, right? Correct. Correct. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hence the lower back pain, <laughs> and hence, hence your pants getting bigger, right? Exactly. Exactly. But the strange thing is, and I'm thinking now, did I ever like actually try and feel for something? And the answer is probably no, because what, I, like, what was I feeling for? I had no expectations of anything foreign being there. So I wasn't poking and prodding around. I just knew something wasn't right. So I, I just, I didn't know. I just didn't know. And so he finds this thing. I schedule surgery as quickly as possible. Cause if there's something in there, that's not supposed to be in there, it's got, it's got to go <laughs> like quickly. And so I went into surgery more nervous about the IV needle, to be completely honest with you. I just thought, well, one and done, let's just get this over with. And uh, I don't like IVs, but it's going to be fine. And I was like sweating that IV. And yeah, so I woke up in the recovery room. The first time I woke up was for a split second and I saw the clock on the wall and um, it said, I believe it was 1124. I'd have to go back and look at my notes right now. But my surgery started at 7 a.m. And they said, oh, it's about an hour tops. No big deal in and out. And so when I saw 1124 on the digital clock, I thought, well, that's not a good sign. And then I was out again. And then the next time I woke up was when the nurse was dictating. And I just remember thinking, oh my God, she's talking about me. And then I was asleep again. And then X number of minutes, seconds, hours, your guess is as good as mine. (laughs) Later, I woke up and I could tell I was being wheeled down a hallway and I could hear crying. And I opened my eyes and my mom and my dad and my brother were leaning over me and their tears were falling on me and, and they were patting my head and they kept saying, this is going to be okay. We're going to get through this. We're going to get through this. And I looked at my dad and I said, daddy, they took everything, didn't they? And he, he said, yes, 
maybe they did. And I said, I have cancer, don't I? And he said, yes, baby, you do. And in the waiting room prior to that, they had been, I mean, obviously shell-shocked, like that goes without saying. The doctor had to stop my surgery and go out and tell them what was going on. So amongst the trauma and the shock and so on, they were trying to figure out how do we tell her? And they, thankfully they didn't have to, because I just already knew. And so, you know, I think when it comes to cancer diagnoses, that mine's a little extreme in terms of surprise, (laughs) your world is being turned upside down in, in terms of the way that I found out, but it was, um, what's better though, being prepared or not being prepared, uh, having time to worry about it or just being hit with it and knowing that you have to just push forward. Who's to say, but that, that is, that's my story in terms of, um, how this all began. So, yeah, that's quite a story for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that, that is, so you saw doctors beforehand, right? Yeah. And they were just kind of like, oh, did they do like a, you know, like a vaginal exam? They didn't feel anything. They were just mm-hmm. like, oh, it's not, you know, how yeah. did it get to the, like, were there a bunch of like, oh, it's probably nothing kind of things before mm-hmm. you even got to that OR, you know? Yeah. So, the first doctor I went to was my gynecologist in my hometown. And I had endometriosis for years. And so I just thought, oh, this is somehow related, right? Like your, your mind just doesn't go there. It's, it's, uh, what's the saying when you hear who feet, you think horses, not zebras. So of course I just thought, oh, this is just one in the same. It's the same thing that I've always dealt with. So I went to, even though I lived in Dallas at the time, and could get what I call big city care. I went to my hometown, my small hometown. And yeah, they did all the things that you would expect them to do. They did physical exams and so on. They did not do any scans. They did not do an ultrasound. That was not done for three months. One thing that was done was, um, and I'm blanking on the name of it right now, potentially because it was so traumatizing. I've probably just tried get out of my memory altogether, but it was a test to assess for a, a, a bladder fistula. So a fistula is in a sense, a hole, right? So a hole between my bladder and my uterus, because I was having some things that were, you know, appearing that were not normal, that should not be there. So they were thinking maybe my urine was, there was a hole and my urine was sleeping, seeping from my bladder down through my uterus. And So my doctor says, we're going to do this test for a fistula. Fistulas really only occur in third world countries with women who have been brutally raped. We're going to test you for it. And I'm like, we're doing that. Like, seriously, we're doing this right now. So anyway, that's how crazy things got. And so what they did is they filled, they put in a catheter, which was the most horrific experience of my life. And I've been through a lot and this is the most painful part that I can recall and filled my bladder up with blue dyed, uh, liquid. I don't know what it was and put a tampon in and said, you have to wait an hour. You cannot pee. And what we're going to do is see if that blue liquid is on that tampon in an hour. So y'all, I can't 
even, I cannot even, it is such a blessing just to pee whenever you want to pee. I have to tell you that because after sitting for an hour, just literally tears streaming down my face in horrific pain. And then finally removing the tampon and saying, oh my gosh, I see a dot of blue. We figured it out. We figured it out. I don't know why I have this thing, but we figured it out. And she said, that's probably just some byproduct of, you know, what was remaining on your body when you put the tampon in, that's not enough to say anything. And she said, so unfortunately at this point, I have to tell you that this is just how you are. And I do not fault her. She was doing the best she could with the knowledge that she had. I was told multiple times, you don't have cancer. You're too long, young. You have no family history. I can't tell you how many times in my life I've been told that. And I, we forgive, we forget, and we move on. And again, thankfully, I'm one of the blessed ones that's, that's still here to have the ability to forgive and forget and move on. But had I listened to this doctor, I would unequivocally not have survived more than a few years. And so when I was told this, I just have to tell you, this is how you are now. I moved on to a different doctor in Dallas who led me to a different doctor who led me to my current oncologist. So that is, you know, in essence, the first major side effect that I had besides you know, just some general low aching in my lower back and my pants not really fitting and everything and just being a little tired. I remember being in the gym one day and saying, my gosh, has this instructor gotten just super mean or am I just on the struggle bus? And so there were, but, but I could equate that to a million different things. You know, it's so easy to write these symptoms off and ignore what's going on. Oh, it's stress, it's fatigue, it's this, it's that, it's whatever. But there was one symptom that I had that I knew was completely abnormal. And that's what she had tested me for and still didn't come to the right conclusion. And so that's, that led me to the oncologist that did the ultrasound and, you know, the story that we just talked about it a minute ago and, uh, got it removed and found out Shazam when I woke up, nothing's ever going to be the same again. So you wake up and, you know, you heard the nurse say, you know, malignant, Mm-hmm. you know, a, a malignancy and yep. your, your parents are in shock and trauma and dealing with it or trying to deal with it. What are you thinking? What's, what, what's <laughs> going on in your head? Like, oh. you know, well, through anesthesia, through that haze, not a whole lot because I, I mean, at, at the, the, the cursory moments here at the beginning of this process, I was so out of it. I was so confused. I mean, I have a scar that's about a foot long running vertically up my abdomen. So I was filleted like a fish. The, I was thinking about pain, Yeah. how uncomfortable I was. Now, when I saw, when I woke up and I saw my parents, I went, I was out again immediately after that for a split second after seeing them, I could hear people like I could hear them rolling me, wheeling me down the hallway. And I could hear people lining the halls that were, that were crying. And I remember opening up my eyes and looking around and I don't even know how many people were there, but my friends and family were, they were lining both sides of the hallway as they wheeled me in. So they certainly had plenty of time to get a lot of people there before I even actually woke up. When I woke up, And, you know, in essence, kind of remained awake, I guess. So anesthesia was wearing off. 
I'm thinking about this uh, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to put myself back there and think about the feelings. And the first thing that pops up in my mind, when I think about laying in that bed and looking around the room was just don't scare them. Take care of them, put a smile on your face. And one thing I've said for 13 years that sticks with me and in the book that I'm writing, I say it multiple times. It is so hard to be the reason everyone around you is trying not to cry. And the first time I realized that was that day laying in that room with my friends and my family, all staring at me, trying to, I don't know what even was going through their head. I don't even want to imagine it. The guilt of even trying to think about what they were thinking is too much for me to even process. But I can imagine that they were probably thinking the same thing as me. You know, don't, don't let her see you cry. And I was thinking the same thing. Don't let, don't, don't scare them any more than they're already afraid. Just be tough for them. So, um, and, and honestly, I didn't get my staging diagnosis. I didn't fully wrap my brain around and understand what was happening to me until it's probably about a month later. I had to start chemo two weeks after my surgery. Cause it was like a nine one one situation. We've got to get this going now. So I hadn't even healed from my surgery yet. And, and I started chemo and I went to MD Anderson to get a second opinion. It was about a month or so after my surgery. And the doctor started explaining the staging process to me. So he's explaining, you know, stage one, two, three, blah, blah, blah. And I said, I don't remember exactly what I said, something to the extent of, well, you just said that I had it in my lymph nodes, right? He said, yes. And I said, but, but you said people that have it in their lymph nodes only have like a 20% chance of surviving. And he said, yeah. And I said, but, but I can't be that person. And he looked at me and he said, has no one explained your staging to you yet? Hmm. And I said, no. And he said, Mandy, you have stage three C ovarian cancer. You have a 20% chance of living five years. And I just remember staring at him and he was very stoic. I mean, I can't imagine having their jobs. He does this multiple times a day. He sees death multiple times a day. And so, you know, he had a decent enough bedside manner, but he was also quite stoic about it. And I, and I understand he, he must have to separate himself from himself from these situations, but he talked to my parents a bit. He put his hand on my shoulder. And as he walked out of the room, he said, I'm sorry. That was it. I, they said that to me too. <sighs> and I'll, it's part of my story. Cause I'll never forget it. You know yeah. what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'll never forget it. I've worked, I've been on their side because I worked in the oh, yeah. nurse. I, I totally like, what do you say? And I'm so mindful of it now. Cause I remember when I went to the ER, cause I didn't have symptoms that were crazy either. I was just thought I worked too much. Mm-hmm. And when I got back to the ER bay after the brain scan, they said, you know, you're not, you know, you're not crazy. You know, you got a marble sized tumor in your head. And I'm like, what? And I'm like, this, it was like somebody just punched me in the gut and I go, this sucks. And I was like the tear, a little bit of tears. And then mm-hmm. they said, I'm sorry. 
Mm. And I'll never forget that. Sounds so finite. It's like, it's like, and I don't know if you take it this way, but you know, when somebody passes away, like, you know, and you're like, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. Like, it's like, it happened already. Like, I don't know. It was just this weird, like, I'm on the receiving side of I'm sorry, you know? Yes. <laughs> yes. For a life-threatening circumstance. So right. in my mind, I, what I hear you saying and what I, what I'm taking from that and the way I felt about it is you're already marking me with an expiration date. <laughs> Right. It's finite. You're telling me, "Mm, sorry, there's, you know, you're probably not going to survive this. It was rough. Yeah. And he was right, by the way. Let's not forget the fact that that is an accurate statement. I should not have survived this, but I did. That, that is truly amazing. So he says he's sorry. Right. You're focusing on just healing the primary because yeah. you definitely, you know, I had a, a couple, a couple weeks to think about things before my surgery, <laughs> but you were, you were there, you were, you just thought you were getting some routine surgery. And then on the back end, and I understand, you know, surgery, you're just like, Hey, you're lucky. You're happy to have a bowel movement, eat something, <laughs> move all that stuff. Right. Yes. So <laughs> Like, you know, (laughs) we like the the basics, like, let Mm -hmm. me drink a sip of water. Like, you know, what, one of the chapters in my book, I just have to tell you this because I just have to tell you this because it's not all doom and gloom. The chapter about me leaving the hospital is, is called at this moment. Anyway, everybody loves a good fart story. (laughs) And it's just about, they told me you have to pass gas to go. And who talks about this in daily life? Like, it's just not, but I was just like, come on, come on. I got a fart. I got a fart. So I I got a funny story too, because in my nursing career, I always mention, you know, that the elderly are always worried about their bowels when they're in the hospital, they're in the, you know, so yeah. I was on steroids prior to surgery. And before I had like four hours of staring at a wall before my case, I was like losing it Be- in, oh, COVID, in COVID land too. Mm-hmm. Right. So nobody could go in. I'm in a paper Johnny. I'm like, Oh my God. And I'm all backed up and I'm like, I don't know <laughs> what to do. So tell me it's anesthesiology guy. So he goes, Oh, don't worry about it. We'll be, you know, they'll give you stuff like, but I was all freaked out about it. So after my case, after my surgery, I had a catheter in by the way, in my mm-hmm. bladder, but I was blessed to have it put in while I was under anesthesia. <laughs> coming out is put, better than, than coming in and going. I in. had it put in and pulled out with not one ounce of drugs. Just disclaimer there. Worse. <laughs> like I'm my, I'm squeezing my legs. Just thinking about it. Carry on. Sorry. <laughs> and, so all, you know, they had brain surgery, like they cut your skull that's clipped in. It's weird. And it just kind of felt odd. Yeah, and I had sure. to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so I get up and go to the bathroom and there's like this thing. And I'm like, I'm a little bound up and I'm like, I don't want to push hard. I want brains coming like all this stuff. Right. And all of a sudden, like I, I had to kind of force a little bit. I heard a squish. <gasps> so I was like the nurse, I called the nurse and you know, I'm done. I go, 
No. I heard a squish when I did this. And she goes, I've never heard of that before. And I'm like freaking out, right? So the surgical PA comes in like an hour later. I said, I had a squish. I hope everybody goes, oh, that happens all the time. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like, you work in a neuro unit. You should know this. Like I was all freaked out. Like like my brain was coming out. You know, it's just that kind of weird stuff. Unbelievable. <laughs> that is a whole new level of story for me. I've never, that's, a, I'll tell you all modesty goes out the window, right? It does. Oh, forget it. I would have been like, um, can, you're going to have to take this patch off real quick and make sure that like something's not leaking, that I'm not just like having a membrane just hanging off the side of my head now or something. So I know. So tell me, so you're going through anything dramatic, go on through the healing process prior, you know, when you get out, tell me a little bit about your story that starts to proceed here. Yeah. So in terms of on the relationship side, to add insult to injury, I was married to someone at that point in time that, um, was an addict and just wasn't strong enough to handle my circumstances. So about a week after I came home from the hospital, he was in essence kicked out of my house, not by me, (laughs) but thankfully it was, it was done. I would have never done it myself. So when, when you talk about the healing process, the first thing that comes in mind to me is just the mental and emotional healing. And I do have to add that part into my story because that adds a whole other level of just crap, you know? And so I was dealing with being separated and I was dealing with a life-threatening diagnosis. I was dealing with not really understanding my staging for a month because before that I just thought, oh, this is just something I have to do. And it'll be fine. I'm just going to get this over with and move on. And that was certainly not the case. So I had what was called intraperitoneal chemo, which is in essence where you have a port inserted into your abdomen. So I have the port, I've got the port scar on my chest, but I also have one on my, in my abdomen. And what they do with intraperitoneal chemo is they fill up your abdominal cavity with a liter of chemo and you roll on one side to let it, it's like almost like a wash, I guess, or whatever you roll on one side. And, and the hope is that it, you know, soaks into the, any remaining chemo cells on that side. And then you roll onto the other side, same thing, stay there for, I don't know, 30 minutes or an hour. I don't remember what it was. And then lay on your back and you just keep kind of flopping around like a fish. And then they did the other chemo. So I left with two liters of chemo in my abdomen. So in terms of when I think about the healing process, aside from the emotional and mental side, the physical side was challenging for me because intraperitoneal chemo is so brutal that they actually have stopped doing the regimen. It has not shown to prolong lifespan. And most women cannot make it through all of their chemo rounds because it is so horrific and terrible. And the side effects are just so incomprehensible. I had six rounds of chemo. My first one was IV because I didn't have my ports put in yet. So I did make it through all five of my IP rounds. And in terms of side effects from that, you know, um, you're just your general nausea and staying in bed for days at a time. And 
by the time I would start to feel better, it would be time to start the next round and so on. And throughout all of this, you know, my scars are healing. My, my physical scars are healing. So let's make a very clear differentiation between those. I'm still working on healing my mental and emotional scars, but my physical scars were healing. And I mean, I, I, I frankly, I think I'm thankful enough to say that there's nothing really noteworthy in terms of my physical healing process and my chemo throughout the six months that I was doing my regimen. It went in essence, as expected as it could, I had to get some new nupagen shots here and there for my white blood cell counts. They were low, but otherwise, I guess it sounds silly to say it, but I was blessed to get through that smoothly. I don't know. Do you say that about chemo? I have no idea. I mean, it still sucked. It was terrible. It was terrible. No matter what, yeah, you made it through relatively unscathed, right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. (laughs) Physically. Yes. Yes. Physically. So talk to me about the mental, because I know me personally, you know, I went through a bunch of things still, you know what I mean? So tell me a little bit about what you were thinking, you know, kind of some of the things as you started to process this and some of the mental stuff that you went through. Well, first and foremost, I had a total hysterectomy at 28. And so I was unable to have children. Now, thankfully for me, I'm a dog person, not a child person. So that at least made it a little bit easier, given the fact that I wasn't someone whose life goal was always to be a mom. So I'm very thankful for that. But as I had mentioned, I was going through a divorce at this point as well. And one of the hardest things for me was thinking, I am damaged goods. Like top to bottom, inside and out, mental, physical, you name it. I checked all the boxes for damaged goods. No one will ever want me again. I cannot give someone a child. I have had cancer. I am divorced. I am traumatized. I am not worthy. And, oh, that kind of stings to even say that right now because I don't believe that anymore. But I had to work through, that took years, that took years for me to understand. I mean, even when I finally, when I met my, my now husband, we've been married for 10 years now. I did some, get him before he gets you, push him away. Don't let him get too close. And I tried to make him leave multiple times because it was just easier to, uh, hurt somebody else before they were able to hurt you. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the, the mental and the emotional side effects, they never go away. They dull some of them, but they don't ever go away. But also something that I very distinctly remember is being just completely obsessed with movies about cancer. And my sister's keeper, for example, I would watch it and I would just wail and cry on the couch and, and not want to talk to anyone and, and just, just allow myself or force myself, I guess, to be so freaked out by my situation. And I think that was my way of coping and allowing myself to feel it because throughout my daily life, 
I made myself just push on. I made myself laugh when I didn't want to. I made myself smile when it didn't feel right. I looked around at my friends that I just thought, I don't even, I cannot relate to normal people anymore. I can't, like, why? I mean, I made myself laugh at appropriate times because that's what quote unquote normal people do. And it just felt so false to me. And so I had these moments of watching these movies and just losing my mind over them. And I think that was just my moments of peaking and knowing I can't hold all of this in anymore. So it was my way. It was my outlet. It was my way to, to get the emotion out and do it by myself and do it in a manner that made me feel oddly enough, less alone because the person on the screen was dealing with the same thing. And one of the reasons that I had to do that was because until probably about six years ago, I didn't really know that many people that had ovarian cancer. So I was very, very alone in my circumstances. It was, I mean, Facebook, I had just joined Facebook like a month before I was diagnosed. All there were, were really cancer blogs with women saying, oh, we're all going to die from this. You know, it's just every, everyone's death is going to look different, but we're all going to die from this. And so there was nowhere to go and nowhere to turn. And so although the physical scars healed and I didn't have what I would consider to be a terrible time with chemo, other than the fact that it's freaking chemo and it's just terrible by itself, but it was the, it was definitely the emotional side effects that, you know, I, I don't think they'll ever be completely gone, but the fear of being alone for the rest of my life, the fear of dying alone, the fear of recurrence was and is huge. You know, what's interesting. I didn't think about this until you shared it is, you know, the recovery time. I watched a lot of movies Mm -hmm. and like people were sending me stuff, Facebook messenger, you know, I help a lot of people you know, in my, in my life. And so people are like, Oh my God, they're sending me messages. Mm-hmm. So I, um, I actually watched documentaries on people that had death experiences, like to find out what it was like. Mm. And I, and I watched this documentary, which was pretty good. It was called heal. It was really good. And, you know, I'm not like this, kind of Bible thumper guy, but I do believe in God and, mm-hmm. I am a Christian. you know, I'll say that because I believe I love the stories of Jesus and I believe it. And I literally watched the history channels version of the Bible, um, from beginning to end. And I just sat there and I'm like, all this suffering that had, had occurred in the world, like, you know, we don't even have that now, but mm-hmm. And I started to just kind of, I don't know if it was a good thing or something I needed to go through too, but sure. it's funny that you mentioned that. Cause I never thought of that until you said it. I'm like, huh, why? Cause I started to like, Hey, I could potentially die. And I got into brain tumor support groups and I'm blessed by sure. There's a lot of other mm. cases that are super hard and I had to pull myself out of some of yep. them because they were like, I was like, oh my God, I can't do this. I'm not on a couple where I feel like great and helpful. I'm kind of behind it, uh, behind some of that. And I talked to some guy from uh, Connecticut Brain Tumor and he said, you know, you're going to hear horrific stories. 
you know, you're never going to be the same. Somebody worked on your brain, which is the CPU, your body and all this stuff. So I was like going through all that, but I could totally understand because you're like, you don't know where to go and what to do with it, Mm -hmm. but you have to like, I I always like, let me deal with the worst case scenario and then I'll work backwards. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. (laughs) You know what I mean? Because everything else looks better after you've looked at that. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know about you, but like, I looked at my, my girlfriend and she was, she's a nurse and, you know, I was divorced and my ex-wife and I are good friends. She's a nurse practitioner. And she was like, oh my God, this is super serious. Anybody in healthcare, like this is super serious. Right. Sure. But the one thing I think they had a harder time dealing with it than me. Like I had my own struggle and I had to go through it, but I felt like I was like, okay, like they were struggling. Mm -hmm. And, but I just couldn't be like, like, I just had to kind of figure life out for a minute. And the one thing that, the one thing that came up for me, and I don't know if you could relate to this is like, I was like, my life's got to be different. Hmm. You know, like, like, what am I doing? Like, did that come up for you? Like your life? Like you kind of look at it. (laughs) Oh, Well, number one, that's why I went through with divorce. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, Hey, this is not worth my time anymore. This is about me now. So yeah, it definitely (laughs) came up for sure. So, but, but I mean, all joking aside it, yes, it did. I just, I, I didn't want to waste any more time. So I travel, I do what I want when I want. When I met my current husband, one of the first conversations we had, aside from the awkwardness of having to say on date two, I can't have kids. And I know it's weird. I'm telling you this right now, but if you just need to know, because we need to just take, shake hands and part ways. If like, you just got to have this conversation earlier if you're me. But I told him early on, I, I want you in my life, but I also want to do what I want to do. And I don't mean that to sound selfish. I mean that to say that I have catered to other people for my entire life. And I've seen what it's like to face my own mortality. And I just, I need the freedom to do what I want when I want. And either you can be a part of it, or I'll just, you know, I'll do it on my own. So thankfully he's just the most happy go lucky guy I've ever met in my life. So he goes along with my harebrained crazy ideas and we travel, we go to Europe all the time. We just got back from Spain and we hike mountains and we just do things that I would say to some people probably are just as mundane as anything else, but for the normal population, they just wouldn't take the time to do, or, or they would be afraid to do or whatever. And certainly I'm still afraid of things, but I just, I don't have time to sit back and say, uh, well, uh, you know, what, what if, what if I just don't do this thing? I'll be more comfortable this way. I'm going to stay in this box. It's not an option for me at all. So you just did what you, you know, you're kind of planning, you just plan things to have experiences. Is yeah. That- I don't want things. I want experiences for sure. That was the one thing I noticed too. Like somebody asked me like literally the day after my diagnosis, I was, ho- I just got discharged. And one of my good friends says, what do you think about? 
And I don't think about work. I didn't think about, there was nothing any amount of money would have given me. Mm-hmm. You know, I just sat there and I said, like, what am I doing? Like, what's, mm-hmm. what's life look like? Mm-hmm. And what the two questions, am I doing God's work here? Mm-hmm. That's what I asked myself. Like, yeah. what am I here for? Like, yeah, absolutely. I don't know if that like kind of crossed your mind, but I, sure. I sat there with that and I'm like, what am I here for? Mm-hmm. And what, you know, kind of what, what's next with this? And, and, you know, so I most, go ahead. I most certainly did that. And for me, it was, and I, I think with a lot of cancer survivors, they go through this. I need to tell my story. I need to spread awareness. I need to be the face of this disease so that other people don't have to go through what I went through and so on. And I, when I was diagnosed, it was a little bit of a challenging time to do that, given the fact that social media was nowhere near what it is now. So I, I didn't have those people to reach out to. And also the organizations and charities that I went to, it just... I couldn't do it. I left after one meeting. It did not work for me. It was very overwhelming and very scary. And um, it took me a few years, but I found my place with telling my story. And so when, when I think about what am I doing here, not only is it whatever I want, <laughs> you know, whatever I want is what I will do, but it's also getting comfortable with talking about what happened to me since ovarian cancer is the silent killer, a lot of women just like me don't even know they have it before it's too late. I have lost numerous friends. So sharing their stories is very important to me. Not letting their story and their legacy die alongside with their body is very, very important to me. And so I ebb and flow with that though. I have to be honest. There are times when I'm like, shout it from the rooftops. And there are times when I'm like, I would just want to be normal. I don't want to be the girl that had cancer and I just go with it. You know, I just go with what feels right at that moment in time. Just kind of honor myself. That's awesome. Let me ask you a question. And this is one of the things I've, I've found is I, I started asking myself the question, like, what's, what's the learning in this? Like, what has this done? That's good. Mm-hmm. So did you ask yourself that question? Oh, multiple times a day. So what answers did you come up with? Well, I think the answers that I came up with led me to my philosophy of not wasting any time. What did I learn from this? Life is freaking short. Yeah. You know, all the cliche things that everybody learns throughout a situation like this, but also I'm worth it. Honor me and it's okay. And that's not selfish. When I take my final breath, I want to be able to look back at all of the fantastic things I did because I didn't say no and I didn't shy away but I also learned to say no when yes did not serve me. Hmm. That's, that's awesome. That's amazing. Yeah. You know, that, that, that is there, you know, I started to think that there's like 
good that comes out of this, mm-hmm. right? Like if I didn't have the experience, I'd probably be grinding hard and not even know, you mm-hmm. know what oh, I mean? Sure. Like, Hey, let me work, you know, house, live on the lake, whatever, and do all that stuff. And then, then what, you know, you get sick and you die. Right. Mm -hmm. And we don't realize it until we're there later on. Like this is kind of a normal trajectory. Yeah. But one of the things you mentioned it is you talk, you know, you felt like you wanted to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And I know that somebody else that I interviewed on the, on one of the other podcasts, Carly said the same thing. Like she felt like she needed to talk about it longer than people were willing to hear about it. Right. Cause Mm -hmm. it's still, and I think that, Mm -hmm. and and I could relate to that. And so I went through this period too. And I, and I would talk to people and it was like, listen, I'm only, I'm a year out October of this whole thing. (laughs) You know what I mean? A year, it seems long. It's not quite long. And I say to people like, yeah, but I'm not sure what my next five years are like. Like, I don't have cancer. I'm followed by an oncologist, a neuro-oncologist. He's from Andy Anderson. And the mm-hmm. term serious is cancer. Like, he's super nice guy, by the way. You know what I yeah. mean? I, <laughs> yeah. There's so many question marks, but he's a super amazing guy. Um, and I said, you know, I say that to people that are close to me and I don't know if it's just a life coping mechanism. They're like, but nobody knows how long they have. Like, that's the answer I would get a lot. And it would like kind of pit, like it irritate me. That's and I'm valid. Like, well, you know, cause you're like, yeah, like in reality, you get hit by a car, you could get in a car accident, something drastic could happen. But when you know that there's something in your body or something going on that could potentially shorten your life, it makes the next one, two, three, five, right? Five years, they give you what? Five years mm-hmm. and 20%, not like yeah. 80%, that's 20. Correct. It makes that, that time compressed. For sure. And so- you know, well, let's pause here for a second so I can validate your feelings <laughs> <laughs> because you need to hear from me that the fact that that kind of pissed you off <laughs> is valid. <laughs> Did you hear I'll that too? That. Did oh, you hear- yes. I heard, I heard that. I heard, well, at least you're still alive. I heard it could have been worse. And I, <laughs> I heard a lot of stuff. <laughs> I heard, I also heard things like, oh girl, I completely understand it. I had a cyst on my ovary once. I totally get what you're going through. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, I can't, I understand people want to try and relate to you and they're finding any way to relate to you, but it's okay to say that you don't understand. It's okay to say that you can't relate. It's okay to just keep your mouth shut and sometimes, and just hug me instead, (laughs) you know? So yes, I, I for sure heard my fair share of things of that nature. I actually, as you're talking, this is just, it's fascinating to me because what you're saying, each segment that we're going through reminds me of another chapter of the book that I'm writing, which is just tells me I'm on the right path, I think. But one of the chapters as of right now is called just get over it already. And I talk about the fact 
that it's so much easier for other people when you just pretend you've moved on. Cause again, I moved on is not a thing for me. That, no, that's not a thing for me. Carry on is a thing for me, but it's, it's something that makes others around you more comfortable. They don't want to live in your pain. They don't want to live in your grief. They don't know how to handle it. So just get over it already. I was interviewed for a book a few years ago and the author grew up in France and we were talking about this concept of how it's just easier for people to move on. And she said in France, they, um, they basically have a certain amount of time to grieve a loss. So let's say your spouse dies, for example, they have a certain amount of time in which they wear black, a certain amount of time in which they don't work a certain amount of time before their expiration, their grief expiration date hits, and they just have to move on. And she said something to me that it just really hit home. And and because I was like, you know, it it was hard for me when, when the flowers stopped coming, it was hard for me when people stopped texting me and stopped checking on me, even though I wanted that, that means I'm getting better, but that was hard for me. Why is that hard for me? And she said, maybe because that is the story that people want us to tell ourselves that when those things stop, you're moving on. Therefore you're quote unquote normal again, which no. And, and they, you are setting them free from your heaviness. And that was something that was really challenging for me because there were times when I would be sitting with a group of people and I'm just, I posted something the other day. That's like, hi, I'm Mandy and I'm an oversharer <laughs> about my cancer story, but I want you to understand why these are the reasons why. And so I walked through that on social media <laughs> and you know, in my, in my book, in this, just get over it already chapter, I talk about a couple of situations in which you know, one thing would lead to another and I would just start just talking about cancer and someone that I worked with came up to the table in which I was saying something uh, to the extent of, you know, I shouldn't even be here. I should have, you know, should have died a long time ago, yada, yada. And she goes, Oh gosh, I walked into this, this conversation at the wrong time. And then she sat down and I was like, okay, okay. Note to self. You know, if I give you a hat, you know, those hats girls wear at bachelorette parties that say this one came with the fun, this one came with the, you know, the, the party and the bad decisions or whatever your hat says, oh man, what did I say? Something to the extent of can't be trusted with my feelings or something like that. I don't know, but we are as survivors over sharers, but there's a reason for that. And I think it's really, really hard for people. It's easier if we just get over it already. Yeah. It just doesn't work that way. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't. And you feel bad for talking about it. I did for, yeah. you know, after a while yeah. I was just like, you know, the people don't want to hear about it anymore. But it's almost a compulsive thing. It's healing. It it's is. like your therapy. And it's also, I mean, you know, the person who said what she said at this work event she talks about her dogs all the time or, or her husband or whatever. How's that any different? This is part of me. This is my life. You're, you, you, you are free to talk about your life and the parts of your life that made you who you are. 
well, sorry, mine makes you uncomfortable, but this is me. <laughs> so I know, I know. Cause they don't know. I think people don't know how to, how to be with it. And, to their and defense, we remind them of their own mortality. I know to their defense. Yeah. Uh, you know, now what I do with people that are going through a hard time, I just say, I say it's hard. It can mm-hmm. be hard. Yeah, sure. It's hard. Mm-hmm. Because I'll never forget. I went to the brain surgeon. I was at a small hospital and was diagnosed and I wasn't having surgery there. I went to the large, the yeah. chief of neurosurgery, another super amazing guy. He must do tons of these, but he was just well, he just knew how to react because obviously he deals with some pr- pretty critical things. Yeah. And I literally walked in there like I I was teary at times. And I just I, I remember four distinct times. And I just said, this is hard. And he's like, I know mm-hmm. this is hard. I know my girlfriend was there. He goes, Todd, I don't know what it is, but it's got to come out. And um, I said, and I'll never forget him on the day of surgery. He goes, I'm glad you decided to do this. I'm like, did I have a choice, <laughs> right? Uh, thank so, you. I don't know. <laughs> but he said I was really lucky. Um, and I think I took it in stages, you know, like yeah. I had to compartmentalize. Let, let me get through the surgery, moving my extremities, knowing my name. Mm-hmm. I'll worry about what it is later. Yeah. I went through that. And I said things like, you know, I, I'm big into the military. And I used to tell myself things like, listen, if these guys could step on IEDs, get shot by snipers and get treated in field hospitals and do okay, then I could under better circumstances do this. That's what I told myself every step of the way. That's fantastic. Yeah. You know, but one of the things that I'm, you know, we're talking about it and I'm working on a book and creating this is it's, it's like a U 2.0. Like, you know, <laughs> it's like Mandy 2.0 yeah. because it's like, you're given a second life. hundred percent. You're literally, and you know, I see it amongst the groups that I'm in people. I'm like, what's your biggest challenge? What's going on? And it's like, aside from the daily symptoms or whatever it is, they're like living my new life and dealing with the potential of the what if, mm-hmm. the, the, the combination, you know what I mean? Hey, come back and all that. But the new life and what that's going to look like because it puts things in a very different perspective. Yeah, for sure. You know, so tell me, like you beat the odds, you're, you're beating the odds as we <laughs> speak, right? <laughs> like, so what did you do? to self-care for yourself. Like, I know for me, I'm like, all right, diet's down. Let me look into this. Let me look at this. I looked at like mind-body connection. I looked at all this and said, where's the missing piece? What do I need to do? What's my mindset? Tell me what you like, your pick up the pieces moment. Like, what did that look like? Yeah, so uh, first off, I did all the basics that most people do. After a life-altering situation, I reassessed everything. I uh, changed my relationships as we've already spoken of. So I just reset my entire life. I moved from Dallas to Austin. I took a new job. The job I had prior, I was traveling all the time. 
And I've said this a million times in the past 13 years as well, but I don't want to live in a Hampton Inn anymore. So I wanted to be at home. I wanted to have a normal life, whatever on earth that even still looks like. By the way, if you know, let me know because still hadn't found it yet. But I just, I reset everything. I moved. My relationships are different. Um, my job is different. I already ate pretty healthy and I already worked out. So I just upped that a bit and became more educated and aware in what I was putting in my body and on my body, for example. So, you know, I, I, but I think a lot of that is, is certainly not a shock in terms of diet and exercise and things of that nature. But I have to just go back to what we talked about before. What did I do to, to change everything? It was honor myself. It was, it was to honor what I needed, honor what I wanted, put myself first, I think for the first time, time in my life. And it's changed everything. And I have to say, I, I mean, you know, I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty confident my life is way better because of what happened to me than it would have been had it not, had I not been diagnosed. So that's, that's kind of my long story with that. Another caveat would be that I met my very best friend in the whole world about five years ago, she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And I had a friend who said, Hey, I know this girl that was diagnosed. Will you go meet her? And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, it scares me. No, I'm not going to do this. Long story short, I went to meet her and we became sisters immediately. And I watched her embrace her story. I watched her embrace her circumstances and share them with the world and help thousands of women. And Although she was 10 years younger than me, I decided to follow in her footsteps. And um, that's why I'm talking to you right now. Had it not been for Brittany Crosby, I would not be talking to you right now because I was too afraid. It was too, when you say it out loud, it makes it real. And although I would ramble on to my friends and family who didn't want to hear it, I had a hard time speaking publicly about my circumstances. So my turning point for I need to change things and I really need to honor myself and I really need to honor my story and I need to honor others and share my story. I can, I can equate that specifically to Brittany. Um, that progressed two years and let's see, three days ago now when we lost her. She passed away the day after Thanksgiving 2019. And that was another moment of reset for me. In another moment of realization of life is a short, do all life is short, do all the things. Say yes when you want to say yes. Say no when it does not suit you. Say no when yes does not suit you. She was so good about that and so unapologetically herself. And so it's so funny to say that I was 10 years older than her and she taught me so incredibly much about life. So I've had these little moments of reset that are still happening even 13 years later. These little moments of I've got to change this. These little moments of I could do this better. I could do this more. I could do, I could do this, <laughs> you know, whatever. So, and I, I can imagine that that's going to continue on. That's amazing. That's awesome. And I loved your energy on social media. And that's what kind of attracted me to want to have you on this podcast. 
to really kind of share your story. I know that we're coming toward the end. Do you have a little more time or do you have yeah, to wrap? Sure. Yeah. I think I'm okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Give me a heads up because you know, this could just go. Cause I think there's just <laughs> a lot of, there's a lot of stuff in here. That's just great to unpack. I am and not I afraid to it. talk. So you're what <laughs> I am not afraid to talk. I'm not, shy. <laughs> I'm not either. I'm a chatter for sure. So, and, and, uh yeah. And, you know, I, I could definitely identify with a lot of you, what you're said. And, um, and I, you know, that's why I'm doing what I do because I think the biggest wake up call for me was that I was living like a lot of people live and it wasn't bad. It wasn't great either. You know, it just I mean? was, it right? just, it just was. Yeah. And it's so simple to, it's so easy to get caught in the trap of it. And one of the things I said to my girlfriend, as I was walking, walking around, I I had bought a lake house and this was pre, Mm. pre brain tumor. I realized too, because I worked in healthcare and I did this unique role where I helped geriatrics kind of manage their lives. Mm-hmm. And one guy said this to me and it, it, he was a CFO of a company and he developed Parkinson's and he said, I worked really hard and this crap happened to me and it, yeah. hit, me. it hit me like a brick. Yeah. Then my mom passed away unexpectedly in her sleep mm. at 75. I was like, Oh my God. And then COVID happened. This all happened the same year, COVID and then brain tumor. So I had like these three things, like, I was like, oh my God. Right. So, but in my, after my mom passed, I realized I was like, I'm bringing my vacation to my doorstep. Mm-hmm. And when I was diagnosed, I was blessed to be around the lake and thereafter and people, and the people were like, oh, I love your lake. I can't wait until someday I live on the lake. And I'm yes. like, really? It's not yes. really that hard to do. Like, listen, I'm not this rich guy. I'm not poor by any stretch, but I just found it and I researched it and I did whatever. Yeah. But what I said to my girlfriend was this, I said, our lives have to be different when I was yeah. diagnosed and the things that we were like stressed out about when I was going through this, I'm like, this doesn't matter. But the weird thing is, is when you stabilize, like you get through it, life goes on. Sometimes that habitual stuff comes back and I'm like, okay, I'm going back to work. I'm doing this. And I'm like, Whoa, did that ever happen to you? (laughs) Yes. So there was something that you said earlier and I, I can't recall what it was now, but I was sitting here thinking, ah, 13 years later, you lose some of that drive to, I don't want to say drive to live, but drive, I'll, I'll say drive to live with a capital L. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because you do have responsibilities and you do have bills to pay and you have all of these things that normal people have to take care of. So, and to be honest, that's also a blessing within itself that you're moving so far past this trauma that you can one day just think about bills instead of cancer. I don't know. You one day can just think about the job, the chip trip you have to take for your job instead of dying or whatever. I mean, so the mundane is not a bad thing because to me, 
the mundane reminds me that I'm here to experience it all. And, you know, unless you're a millionaire or unless you're just, you, you, you live so below your means that you're capable of doing such, most people can't just up and travel 100% of the time. Most people can't just drop what they're doing for the rest of their lives and do what's fun. God bless you. If you can, you know, that's amazing, but most people can't. So for me, the way I choose to see it, although the mundane sunk back in a long time ago and, and, you know, it has to, to a certain extent is my job and these mundane things. It's my way to get me to do the thing. It's the vehicle that takes me to do the things I want to do. So it's just a way of resetting your mindset on the mundane to make you and help you realize that a they're necessary, but also b they're serving a bigger purpose so that you can do and be and see and whatever it is you need to fulfill whatever the trauma, the need that the trauma left you with, I guess. A hundred percent agree. A hundred percent because you, you, you can't and nor do you want to just like, like, honestly, like I went back to work a little earlier than I mm-hmm. should have. My doctor's like, oh, maybe take another week. But I was losing my, like, I was like, all right, I gotta, I, I gotta feel like I'm doing something too somewhat productive. For sure. But, for but sure. I'm not like the searching for the directorship job or all that, that doesn't matter to me. Like, it's more of like, Hey, I want to be home. Like you said, cause I, I traveled, I did medical device sales too. Little, Got it. Okay. I was yep. in, I was in hotels. So you I, get it. I totally get it. And I get to enjoy my dog now. Love it. Like, love it. <laughs> some of the, the simple, simple things, but really understanding too, that, that life is short. And I love what you said about just experiencing, experiencing life and do the things that you wanted to do. For sure. And, and I think, I think a lot of people, because I've worked with clients too, and a lot of people say when the kids get old, when they move out of the house, they do X, that I think is a hard thing to do. And granted, you have responsibilities with kids, you put your kids through college, you have all that, but just imagine that it's cut short. Mm -hmm. It may be cut short. How would you live your life different? One of the things that I learned and it really was in my first hospitalization when I got diagnosed at that small hospital, like the things that mattered most, the two people, the two disciplines in the hospital were the people that transported me and those, the aides, like the mm-hmm. PCA, because they sat and talked with me. They're driving yeah. me to the test. They're like, how you doing? What's up with this? Like, and I look relatively healthy, right? <laughs> they're like, what are you in here for? And when people hear your story, they're like, really? Do you know what I mean? But yes. just talking to somebody was super, that was probably the most important thing. No, I completely agree. I completely agree. And you made a comment that just made me think, um, sorry, my dog's getting antsy. He's so if you hear him shaking in the background, I apologize. That's all but good. this thought of, well, you look healthy, you know, you know where I'm going with this. I do you look healthy. You, you can't be sick, you know? And so that within itself was an interesting com. I think concept for me 
this thought of, I can look a certain way, but the inside of my body is literally dying, you know? And so that I, I have a lot of friends who have said that they've been, they've had conversations with people that have said, again, just not in these words, but why don't just get over it? You don't look sick. And, um, that to me is such an interesting con concept because we've got to remember that we're, we're a whole human. <laughs> we're more than just what we look at, like on the outside and compassion is so incredibly important. So the fact that they, they took the time to talk to you and they took the time to listen to what you had to say, regardless of what you look like on the outside is just, it's, it, it, it offers such respect and it gives us the opportunity to share our story in a way that is healing for us and also maybe healing for the person that's actually willing to sit and hear it also. So it's not just beneficial for our emotional well-being. It's beneficial for the person that holds our hand and just nods as we tell them our story. Yeah, for sure. So tell me and you know, I'm big into trauma now, like this had brought me to look at trauma deeply, not just the experience that I went through, which was trauma, but I started to look at like, cause my diet was dialed in. I was always pretty healthy, right? I took care of that side, but I could see where I was like, wow, I lived a life of stress. My younger years were challenging. And, you know, and I sought help at an early, an early age when I was younger, but I had a lot of PTSD and I started to dive into this and the effects that it has on the body. Now, what's your take on your trauma, on the trauma? Cause you mentioned it a couple of times and I think the experience for sure is a huge trauma that yeah. goes forward. Tell me a little bit more about that from your perspective. So in terms of, of the trauma, I feel it physically now. I definitely and most certainly still have moments when I feel it emotionally, hands down, no, no bones about it. That won't go away. But I think I've internalized a lot of my trauma and I feel it in physical pain now. So I do have, I've got a lot of muscle pain. I've got a lot of joint pain and I, to be completely transparent and fair, I am making an assumption, right? Because what would I be had I not gone through what I went through? I don't know, maybe the same leg would hurt. Maybe my hip would still hurt. I have no idea, but my assumption is I, because of my personality, house my trauma physically 13 years later. Um, earlier on, I would have bouts of sitting in my apartment, not wanting to speak to anyone for a week trauma, PTSD would significantly increase the week before my follow-up appointments, my oncology appointments. I wouldn't want to talk to anyone. I wouldn't want to see anyone. It was just too overwhelming. Uh, I would release my trauma with the sad movies and so on and so forth. It was a lot more emotional for years. And I don't know if it's good or bad. And I am also just getting older. I'm 41 now, but my body hurts. And I do think that is, it is that internalization of the emotional and mental pain that I have just pushed through and I'm still working on pushing through. Yeah. Yeah. That was my whole life. 
pushing mm-hmm. through. Mm-hmm. And it was funny. And, and this is for listeners. And I think I'm going to do a couple, a series of podcasts on this because it, I really dove into it was I was, I listened to some podcasts because I'm a huge podcast fan. And I was listening to a podcast by Jocko Willink, who I like. He's a Navy SEAL. I don't know if you ever heard of him. No. He, he wrote the book, Extreme Ownership. Just an amazing okay. guy. Listen to him. So he interviews, uh, his interviews go for three hours, by the way. But I'm like glued ah. to that. <laughs> it's a so good three hours. <laughs> he, he actually interviewed this guy. His name is Mike Day. And my goal in life is to get him on a podcast. And I'm going to send him a message for sure. And he's a Navy SEAL and he was shot like 27 times and he lived mm. in Iraq. But the bigger part of the story wasn't that part that got me. If you, he's, He wrote a book called Perfectly Wounded. He lived through it, but he grew up with so much trauma. Like he, he was abused as a kid and how he transformed it. But he mentioned, the reason I bring this story, he mentioned this book that really transformed them. And it's called The Body Keeps the Score. And it really goes into a lot of research around trauma. And I really started to look at this and I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. And ways to kind of help with Mm. trauma. So I encourage a lot of listeners, if you're dealing with PTSD or any types of trauma, I'm me personally, I hate, I'm not a big label guy Mm -hmm. because it's a double-edged sword because I realized I, I finally put a label on it when I got this with the brain because the label made me feel like, okay, I'm not alone, but I had drive to get better. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Like sure. I pushed through, I didn't, I didn't say to myself, oh my God, this is my thing. And just kind of crawled up in a ball, you know? And so I love what you shared about that. You watch sad movies, like the things that you did to kind of cope with that, you know? Yeah, Absolutely. Um, was, what would you say to somebody that is going through a traumatic experience or that had gone through a traumatic experience? What kind of words of wisdom would you give them? It's okay to feel what you feel. It's okay to, uh, something, something my mom told me, it's okay to cry. It's okay to be emotional about this. It's okay to feel what you feel. Just don't live there. Don't stay there. And if you do, if you do seek out help, it is okay to seek out help. And so that is the most important thing. And I'll circle back around to my theme for this whole conversation. Honor thyself. (laughs) (laughs) Honor Honor thyself. That is so important, but also feel what you feel. And seek out your people, find those people that make you feel okay, that can relate, that can understand, that can listen, that can can make you feel less alone and lean on them when you need to and step away when you need to honor thyself in in every capacity you can honor thyself. That is, that is awesome. So the other thing that I wanted to ask you is you've been mentioning this book. So let's give you a plug for the book for sure. Okay. So tell me a little bit about the book, when it's going to be available and when it is, if you do a part two. Oh, hundred percent. I will. On the 100%. book. Yes. So I, my book is, I've got one chapter left in essence in my first rough draft. 
So I am, I am still working on the very, very first version of it. And the, I have to be transparent. The last chapter has been the hardest for me because it is about Brittany, about my friend that passed away. And I'm, I'm dealing with a little bit of avoidance here <laughs> in terms of writing it, but I have committed to getting this done. So the first draft, I have committed to finishing this month. And then I have some critique buddies that I'm going to send it off to, and that'll take X amount of time. I don't know for them to give me those edits. Once I get those edits back, I'm going to start attempting to uh, send out my query letter and send out my proposal to agents and see if anyone takes a bite. So after that, it's anybody's guess. So I have to say the hard work has not even begun yet. The first draft is almost finished, but after that, that's when it really starts. So cross your fingers. I don't know. The sky's the limit. And We'll just ride this wave as long as it takes, but I'm committed. I mean, self-publishing certainly is always an option. So um, the time frame is TBD, but I will by all means keep you posted and and uh, everyone just say a prayer and cross your fingers for me. <laughs> yes. It's a huge goal I have, that's for sure. And we'll have your contact information in the show notes okay. of of where how to reach you for sure for anybody Perfect. that's you know looking to um for some inspiration some help or you know any any guidance on there absolutely and um you know before before we leave um and before we end the show i i'd love to ask you a question about what was the one thing or a couple things that you felt led to you living this life on purpose and you you being here today mm -hmm. and beating the odds well oddly enough you just said the answer for me Brittany's tagline and we all have shirts that say live life on purpose we could end with that i mean it was it was the relationships I made along the way. It was my relationship with her. It was learning from her. It was opening myself up to opportunities, honoring thyself, of course, but honoring the fear, listening to the fear, but not letting it take hold, just doing the thing, whatever the thing was. Um, but she taught me how to live life on purpose. Watching her go through what she went through and still having that beautiful smile on her face all the time, I just thought, man, what do I have to be angry about? So I let it go. Even after I lost her, I let it go. I can't. It's not worth my time holding on to it. Yeah. It's detrimental, right? A, it's a waste of time. B, it's detrimental to my health, both mental and physical. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's amazing. It has been a joy and an honor to have you on to hear Likewise. your story. We went a while and, but I thought it was well worth it for sure. Oh, sure. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> Absolutely. So stay <laughs> tuned. 
to there'll be a part two. This is an accountability piece for the book. Meow, right? <laughs> uh oh. Okay. And, and we will we will sign off and.